3: It is Friday, October 28, 2022. Happy Friday. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Glad to have you here and on board every single weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And then when the show's over, it becomes a free podcast on demand. No charge to you. Seven days a week because we have bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. All the resources right there. GuyBensonShow.com. You can follow us on Twitter which now has a new owner, you might have heard, at Guy Benson Show. Same handle on Instagram as well. Jot down our phone number, toll free. We'll be taking your calls later on in today's show. We'll explain coming up. But just for now, here's the number, 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. We'll get to our first guest here in just a moment. Later this hour, Robert Kahaley of Trafalgar Polling. They have been quite accurate in recent cycles. They're dismissed by a lot of people on the left. What is Mr. Kahaley seeing in the cards and the data this time, this cycle? We'll ask him. Josh Krasauer will also be here in our final hour, breaking down a bunch of races across the country, including the one that we begin with here today. With us now is Blake Masters, Republican nominee for the United States Senate out in Arizona. Blake, welcome back to the show. Guy, great to be back with you. Thank you. So a couple weeks ago we had you on. It was shortly before your one and only debate against your opponent, Senator Mark Kelly. I watched that debate. I think, at least in my mind, it was a turning point in the race. You performed very well. You were prepared and aggressive. He seemed not ready for what you threw at him. Do you have a similar sense about that moment, that night, being an inflection point, or was that just one step along this path?
4: You know, it was both. I think we had momentum before, but that was also certainly an inflection point, right? It was the first time a lot of people, both in Arizona and, you know, everywhere, in Washington, D.C., for instance, first time a lot of people got to see me. And look, I I don't know if that was the best that Senator Kelly can do, right? Either he was lazy and unprepared, or that's the best he can do, in which case, yikes. But uh, not even the fake news liberal media could pretend that he won, because he obviously didn't. So... Um, I think you know. all I had to do was go out and tell the truth. That's what I did. I knew Senator Kelly was going to struggle because his record is indefensible. So how exactly is he supposed to capably defend it? But
3: uh, good inflection point. We've had the momentum ever since, and we're not looking back. Yeah, that was early October, and you got the sense like, okay, things might be shifting out there. I was hearing some rumors and some reports and some folks on the ground saying – Kerry Lake is surging in the governor's race. Blake Masters is not far behind. This thing is definitely moving. And now here we are in late October. We are a week and a half or so away from Election Day. And a bunch of the smart set that have been writing you off for a long time, suddenly they're catching up with reality and saying, oh, wait, actually, now that we think about it and now that we're hearing about some of the data and that sort of thing, this race is no longer lean Democrat. This is a pure toss-up race. They might have been a little late to the party, but they've gotten there. If you agree, and I assume you do, please explain to us, based on what you're experiencing on the ground, what you're seeing in your numbers, why is this a toss-up now?
4: Well, it's a jump ball if you look at the polls. You know, they either have me down one in the statistical margin of error, or, you know, we have some public polls and some private data that says it's, it's really just tied up. Uh, but the difference is we've got the momentum, and the Democrats don't. You know, I think we're running a strong race. I'm certainly uh, outworking Mark Kelly, doing more media interviews, more grassroots events, just more, more, more. But it's also not unique to my race, right? Statewide, we've got a great ticket. Carrie Lake, right? I think she's the best gubernatorial nominee uh, in the whole country. And it's not even close. She is crushing her opponent, Katie Hobbs. We're running uh, as a team. We're doing a lot of joint events, including with our AG candidate, Abe Hamaday, our our secretary of state candidate, Mark Fincham. We're, We're kind of a united front. And the Democrats aren't doing that. But it's not even just statewide, right? It's national. And I I sort of knew this was going to happen. I I, I knew that our grassroots in Arizona and just patriots across this country are fired up. But now uh, I think everybody's seeing that the dam has broken. We have all the momentum on our side. The Democrats wanted to make this entire election about, you know, January 6th and abortion. And turns out, you know, a lot of people are having trouble affording food. A lot of people in Arizona are— just mad as hell about this wide open southern border that Joe Biden and Mark Kelly have created. Right. Violent crime is surging. So nothing that the Democrats have touched is going well. People are really waking up to this. That's why I think we're starting to see the red wave bill both here in Arizona and across this country.
3: Well, and even on one of the issues that they wanted to focus on and fixate on abortion, once they learn about Mark Kelly's voting record and his opinion on it, they're like, whoa, wait, hang on. That's no. No, thank you. I don't want that either. And I think that was one of the points that you were able to make very ably in that debate a few weeks ago. I actually think back to our previous interview, Blake, and you were extremely forthcoming and candid in a way that you don't necessarily hear from candidates a lot of the time. And we actually had Tucker Carlson on the show this week, and he has this special out at Fox Nation, as you know, about your campaign, your candidacy, and he was very high on you as a very different type of person seeking office. He holds a low opinion, broadly speaking, of politicians, and you're one of those exceptions to his rule, at least. And reflecting before our interview today i remember when we last spoke in late september you just admitted right now we're about three or four points behind oftentimes you have candidates refusing to admit that they're behind and not get specific you said we think we're about maybe three or four points behind it's shouting distance we can get there we need to build momentum well here we are weeks later and it sounds like your candid information for us is that you're no longer four points behind you're tied is that right
4: That's right. Although you know what, I'm going to
3: continue to run
4: like I'm four points behind. You know, I mean, we might actually be up one. You know, I think we might win this race by by one or two points here. It might not even be a photo finish. But my mentality for the last five hundred days has been underdog, and I'm going to act like the underdog. I'm going to sprint through that finish line. We're going to campaign like we're down four or five points.
3: Well, you are the underdog. I mean, there's no way. Right, we can't get around the reality that you are an underdog. I saw, and I had to chuckle. Well, and we'll talk to Josh Krasauer about this later in the show. Kathy Hochul, the Democratic governor of New York, just today called herself the underdog in the race, which is hilarious. I mean, so funny. She, she's the Democratic governor of New York. She is absolutely not the underdog. If she feels like she might have a chance to lose, you know, that's that's quite an indictment of her and her party. She's not the underdog, though. Whereas you are, right? You're up against an incumbent senator who is, to put it very lightly, extremely well-funded. He has been spending just gobs of money trashing you for many, many months. And for you as a first-time candidate, underfunded by a long shot compared to him, to be tied right now at this stage in the race, that is an underdog story at the moment. I think it's smart for you to be running that way. I did want to pick your brain, though, on something that I think you would have some interesting insight into, a lot of your background in business and in tech must furnish certain thoughts that you have and i know that i've i've read and listened to some of your comments about big tech and a lot of the controversies surrounding politics and big tech well there was a little mini maybe more than a mini earthquake in big tech just yesterday it became official elon musk has acquired twitter there are some huge changes happening on that platform there is gnashing of teeth. There is rending of garments in certain quarters about it. Uh, a new era on Twitter, at least. I'm just very curious to hear your thoughts on that.
4: Well, I'm thrilled that it got done. You know, I'm, I'm just shocked and also thrilled. Uh, I think Elon's going to do a great job. And all the liberal tears that are being shed today. You know, it's it's just so weird that they hate free speech this much, right? They say, oh, Elon taking over Twitter, that's a threat to democracy. And it's like, what a sh- strange kind of democracy they have in their minds, one that's threatened by free speech, right? We're not looking to kick off AOC or Elizabeth Warren. I don't want to shadow ban them. I don't want to censor them. Let them speak, right? We win when they speak as long as we're allowed to get our ideas out too. So the energy on Twitter in the last 24 hours, it has been it's been fun. Um, it's been jubilant, right? It feels like 2016 energy again. And I think the dam is breaking. So I welcome this. You know, in general, I I think the big tech companies have way too much power and they use it for these left-wing political ends, you know, Facebook suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story in the weeks before the 2020 election. Like that had a material effect. Apparently the FBI, like either pressured or uh, worked with Facebook to get that done. That's crazy. We should not allow that kind of, uh, interference well Twitter too right Twitter companies. banned the New York post they they took they down their the post, account they, yeah, banned, suspended it. they banned president trump right you could be the uh some some horrible Atayola in in Iran and chant like you know death to Israel and oh Twitter doesn't take you down for that but then uh President Trump tweets and they take him down I mean this this censorship that Twitter was able to get away with for so long was so backwards and so crazy and I think Elon is gonna is going to clean that up. Now, I'm grateful for people like Elon who go and do that, um, but I think we need a political backstop, too. And when I get into the U.S. Senate, I will be by far the most knowledgeable senator about big tech and the harms these companies perpetrate and, and how to regulate them, right? Because you've got to do it in a way that doesn't mess with small and medium business. I don't want to, by default, regulate business. That's, that's what the left wants to do, right? But at a certain point, these giant multinational tech monopolies, I'm talking you know, Facebook, Twitter, Google, we've got to make sure that they are playing by the the rules, not getting involved in our elections. And at a certain point, they're, you know, quasi-public utilities. and They need to be free speech platforms.
3: Well, it does feel like there's a moment happening right now between Elon taking over Twitter. I think a lot of people never expected it would actually go through and happen. Well, it's happened. It's the new reality. And, you know, meanwhile, you watch Meta, the parent company of Facebook, and their stock just absolutely tanking. Something's going on, and it's very interesting to watch, and I could probably talk with you about it for a while. But I want to bring it back before we let you go, Blake Masters, to your race. We are so close to the finish line. How are you going to spend these next 10, 11 days, precious, precious days on the campaign trail, with a closing message to the people of Arizona, trying to keep that momentum you were talking about going You know, through the, the final gun? What does that schedule and message look like for you?
4: Several grassroots events a day, right? Uh, a press conferences, kind of any TV camera at this point, no matter how fake and liberal the news is. Uh, just get out there and remind the people of Arizona, hey, ask yourself, are you better off now than you were two or three years ago? Unfortunately, the answer in almost every case is a resounding no, right? And so I tell people the choice. If you like wide open. Borders and fentanyl and illegal immigration. Uh, if you like rising violent crime, if you like rising prices, paying too much for gas and groceries. If you like all this stuff, hey, there's a U.S. Senate candidate for you in Arizona. His name's Mark Kelly. He caused all these problems uh, along with Joe Biden. And if we give them any more time in office, he's gonna he's gonna make this stuff worse. But if you think you and your family deserve better, right? If you want safe streets, a secure border, uh, commonsensical schools, affordable prices. Let's get Republicans in charge of the Senate. Let's stop Joe Biden. Replace Mark Kelly with me, and I'm actually going to the good people of Arizona.
3: Blake Masters, Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate, a race that has now been shifted into the toss up category by the talking heads in Washington, D.C. It is very clear the way the winds are blowing. Are those winds strong enough to get Blake over the final line? We'll see. But right now, I think I'd probably rather be him than Senator Mark Kelly. We'll find out soon enough. Blake, if we don't talk before then, good luck the week, or let's see, Tuesday, a week from now. uh, And we look forward to perhaps having you back on the show, fingers crossed, as a senator-elect. How about that?
4: Sounds great to me. And if people want to help me get there, they can go to BlakeMasters.com, chip in. Thank you all, and God bless you guys. Thank you, Guy.
3: That's Blake Masters on the Guy Benson Show. It's a Friday. We've got a loaded program ahead. So much to get to. Stay with us.
2: Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to FoxNewsPodcasts.com.
3: I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. So a disturbing and very strange story out of San Francisco, California, emerging today. The husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was assaulted, apparently pretty seriously, inside the couple's home in that city. Pelosi's office putting out a press release earlier, which is obviously very upsetting. Obviously, this is a horrible crime. They're saying that Mr. Pelosi is expected to make a recovery, but it's scary. And the suspect, and they have the suspect in custody, I hope once everything is sorted through, they throw the book at the guy. There's just no excuse. It's appalling. I know a lot of people have jumped to conclusions about who this guy is and why he allegedly broke into the house and assaulted Mr. Pelosi. Questions if he was looking for... Speaker Pelosi, who was not home at the time, we are getting some information about this individual, and I just don't want to get out over my skis. Hasn't stopped other people. We're like, oh, this is a right-winger, engage in political violence, and this is, you know, a huge warning sign again about the violent right. Well, if we're seeing this individual's sort of body of work, if you will, his digital footprint over years and his activism, it looks like there's a grab bag of crazy with some things that are not associated with the right or left, some that are absolutely associated with one side or the other. I think people should just maybe hold off on the easy conclusions about who did what or why. Certainly on the why side, people instantly want to turn this into a political narrative. The exact reason why we were cautious about the attack on a Republican canvasser in Florida this week, which we discussed yesterday. I will say that some of the details of this attack are very bizarre to me. So the chief of police in San Francisco, this just came out a little more than an hour ago, said the following, that officers, the department, were dispatched at 2.27 a.m., to the residence of speaker Nancy Pelosi regarding an A priority well-being check. When officers arrived, they encountered quote an adult male and Mr. Pelosi's or Mrs. Pelosi's husband Paul. Our officers observed Mr. Pelosi and the suspect both holding a hammer. The suspect pulled the hammer away from Mr. Pelosi then violently assaulted him with it. Our officers immediately tackled the suspect, disarming him took him into custody, and requested emergency backup while rendering medical aid to Mr. Pelosi. This is from the chief of police in San Francisco. The man will be booked on attempted homicide, assault with a deadly weapon, elder abuse, burglary, and several other additional felonies. And I just I want to be careful here. I see conjecture and speculation out there. We're not going to get into that. This person, who appears to be the assailant, first of all, the the attack happened when the police were already there and they both had hammers. There's just just like some some weird things happening here, according to the police chief. I just read to you what his account is of what happened, sort of the sequence of events. This person has said crazy things, sort of quote-unquote, on both sides in his past. It appears that there's a criminal record, elder abuse, And other felonies might be part of that record. I just think... Let's proceed with caution. When it comes to some of the details and what happened and what the backstory is here. What we can say is this is scary. It's inexcusable. Beating an elderly man with a hammer is unconscionable. And... The person responsible should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And we wish a very speedy and full recovery to Mr. Pelosi. We'll follow it on The Guy Benson Show. Talking polling next. Don't go anywhere. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Very glad to have you all here. Podcast is always free. That includes bonus Benson over the weekend. Well, it's that time of year and that time of the election cycle. Time to bring back Robert Cahaley, who is the chief pollster at the Trafalgar Group. Robert, it's great to have you back here. It's been a few years. It has been a while. Well, we're glad to have you back. And... The reason that I wanted to uh, bring you here and ask you some questions about the state of the race and sort of a a host of races across the country is because you guys have established yourselves as one of the more intriguing pollsters in the country, and you've developed a track record in recent years. And I notice that there are still some people out there who dismiss – whenever you guys put out a poll that might be, let's say, for example, bad for the Democrats or worrisome for the Democrats, they say, oh, that's just Trafalgar. So let's start there. What is the track record of your polling firm over the last couple of cycles?
0: Yeah, for the last three cycles, uh, our error rate is uh, the uh, lowest of any of the uh, major pollers, uh, polling companies, and um, it is between uh, 2.3 and 2.4 and uh, as, as an average. And most of the guys we're competing with are in the fours and fives. We even stayed below 2.5 in 2020 when they all went off the rails. So And then in 2021, most of you might remember, we had the best poll in mich I mean in Virginia and New Jersey, two tenths of a point from perfect in Virginia.
3: And you guys, if I saw correctly on this track record, have correctly predicted the winner. Like, you know, because you were just talking about margins, but getting the right winner, at least, in well over 90% of the races. Is that right? Roughly 92% of the races?
0: Yes. And in this year's primary, uh, every poll we did within a week and a half of the election, we were 100% predicting the right winner
3: in all the primaries. So we are now about a week and a half away from the general election Let's talk about the big picture nationwide. There is a handful kind of outlier polls, uh, online polls in particular, that still have the Democrats ahead on the generic ballot. Basically, every other poll has the Republicans ahead two, four points somewhere in that range. What are you seeing? What do you think the national environment, the national electorate is going to look like in 11 days?
0: Our last generic ballot was five. Uh, We're getting another one to be finished in the field right now. Uh, I expect it to be north of five just because of the uh, atmosphere that I'm seeing out there. So I, you know, I think the national, the national mood uh, has been and continues to be pro-Republican. And I never bought in the whole, uh, the whole, some of nonsense that the Democrats are making these big hay. I, I don't believe it was real. I think it was a pump and dump.
3: There's a race that I'm dying to ask you about before we get to any of the Senate contests, which listeners know I'm borderline obsessed over, but I can't get over this. I don't know if you saw the quote yet, but Kathy Hochul, the Democratic governor of New York, just today said that she considers herself to be the underdog in her race, which is Quite a thing to say. I think some of that is just expectations management and trying to get her people, you know, nervous and and motivated to turn out and vote. But I think there's at least some actual fear there. We've seen a number of polls in the last couple of weeks, only the last maybe two weeks, that have a single-digit race in the New York governor contest. There was one that I saw that had Zeldin maybe up by a point, but. The other ones had him down four, had him down six, but a far cry from the 25, 30-point waltz that you might expect in a place like New York, given how blue it is. Your firm, Trafalgar, is one of the very first to point to significant movement in that race, and it was, I think, widely laughed off, dismissed. That's ridiculous. No way. Now it's looking so not ridiculous that even the Democratic incumbent herself is at least trying to spin that she's uh, the you know the underdog here. What is your take on the trajectory of that race, and what's your reaction to what Hochul's saying?
0: Well, and you're, you're right about that. I mean, it was almost two months ago and I saw everything that I saw in New Jersey and it made, and I regretted that we didn't pull New Jersey any earlier because had we people, could have realized that it was going to be closer. And so I, I didn't want to have that regret. And I talked to our membership and they were like, yeah, go ahead and try it. And so we polled New York and everybody said again, we were crazy when we said it was a four point race uh, two months ago. And then we said it was two and the polls keep getting closer and closer to us. Yeah, I mean, we're gonna pull it one last time. Uh, It would not surprise me at all for them to be up. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me for it to be dead even. It wouldn't surprise me for him to be a point back, but it is a very competitive race. It's the only race in the uh, country, the only state in the country where crime is number one issue and economy is number two. And there are just a lot of people who have had all they can take, and they're, they're very frustrated. And Zeldin has been an exceptional candidate, and you know she has not been, and, and there's a lot of buyers from Morse, believe it or not, of a Cuomo. We hear that all the time. Cuomo did better. It, this wouldn't be happening under Cuomo.
3: Robert Cahaley, our guest here on the Guy Benson Show, chief pollster at the Trafalgar Group. And, Robert, you just said something that was interesting. You said you went to your members, and they said, yes, go ahead and poll it. Uh, what exactly does that mean? Do you have a membership? I know good polling is very expensive to do, and you guys are doing a lot of it, whereas even some of the big media pollsters are not. Who's funding this? You know, What, what does the membership exactly look like? And then, maybe somewhat relatedly, if you guys are—and and you've just laid out the case for why you are more accurate than a lot of the other so-called big boys or the establishment polls—what's the secret sauce? How are you getting better results?
0: Well, start with uh, there's a lot of companies, and Rasmussen has a membership, uh, and some others that you pay to be members. Ours is a little different, and that our membership is much smaller, and it's mostly. Uh, corporations, individuals, uh, high net worth individuals, who just want the truth. We get approached all the time from major donors who say, I've been told to invest in this race and this race, but I know what they tell me is nonsense. What's really going on in that race? And so we decided to kind of turn that, what we want to do is not actually make our predominant work be for, for candidates and for Facts who cared what the outcome was. And so our people, you know, they just, they join and they have certain level of access to a certain amount of polls or states depending upon what they pay, but they have no, it, it's just, they just want real numbers. And, they and obviously they're numbers. willing,
3: if they're willing to pay all that money, they have to feel like they're getting a return on that investment. And you're saying, hey, okay. look at our results, look at what we're doing in terms of accuracy compared to some of these, you know, these other competitors out there in the space. And, you know, you hear about horribly low, you know, rates of people responding to polls. It takes forever to get a single person on the phone who's willing to do a whole poll. How do you guys kind of figure out the secret sauce to polling things accurately in this sort of difficult influx environment?
0: Well, we look at it this way. Take, for example... A bank. Years ago, they did it one way. You had to go in, you made deposits in the bank, and then the banks recognize that things are changing. And so all of a sudden, you can now you can make a deposit in an ATM, or you can you can call them on the phone and do all touch tone, or you can use your phone to take a picture of it. And so they've met, they've managed to merge people's level of need for anonymity and their embrace of technology. And built a system that works for anybody, and that's what we've done with polling. So you don't have to just take that six o'clock evening call when you're trying to, you know, get your kids some dinner, or you're on the way back from little league practice. You can you can do that call. You can do the thing that comes on the phone. Well, when we send you a text, you don't have to respond to it immediately. We tell you, you have forty eight hours. And, you, and our text, we don't, on the link, you can text back and forth, our emails, and our online, all of it gives you the ability to respond at your own pace when you want to, other than the, li- you know, other than the live phone call. They can respond whenever they want to within mm. a time period. So we give them flexibility, and we give them you know, whatever kind of technology works best for them that they're most comfortable with. Uh, that also provides the level of anonymity when you get beyond that live call. And we also believe in short questionnaires because the number one question we get is how long is this going to take? That's the number one question you get. And so we present up front as a short three question poll, five question poll, three minute poll. And we tell them up front. So it radically affects our completion rate. I mean, most thousand person polls, uh, we we, we are able to do with a universe of just 70,000 people. That's kind oh, of our magic number, and wow. that is way lower than most people. But again, you know, like with the with the you know the the uh, online stuff, they get some reminders, and so we just keep sending reminders till we have the number we need uh, within the three day period we do the poll. So, and and we don't set any hard standards. where We have this many this method. No, what are people responding to. You know, if if, if we're short. A certain demographic, and we say, "All right, what do they respond to most?" Well, that group is responding emails. Then guess what? I send more emails. I mean, that's just the, that's the best do way you, to do it.
3: Do you do yeah. waiting for age or race or income or education? Do you do waiting? How does that work?
0: Well, we don't we don't usually wait for education and income because one uh, people tend to. You know, we're the guys who think people lie on polls, and we found that when you start asking income, people always uh, add a bracket higher than whatever you ask for their income, unless they're really rich, and then they all say they make a hundred thousand plus.
3: <laughs> Interesting. Um,
0: but people exaggerate and stuff like that, and we really found that it doesn't it doesn't matter. The problem with a lot of these quote unquote media and establishment polls, and they say, well, they over. The higher uh, education level is because they're asking 35, 40 questions. You're not going to get average people taking that. You're going to get your highly educated people. I saw a poll the other day. I'm looking at it. said 50% college graduate or greater. 50%. They need a state like that in the country. It's mm-hmm. trash bowl. It's useless. You can't get average people with 40 questions, it is pseudoscience.
3: All right, so you feel like you found this interesting blend of just uh I guess options for people and not tricks, but kind of best practices that are producing more responses from an array of people and getting a more accurate look at what's really happening in races. At least for the last couple cycles, that has been borne out by the actual results and you know, you're only as good as your last batch, so we'll see how things look coming up after november the 8th but based on that track record that you've described and looking ahead to an election that's now very soon and in many places voting has been well underway for days if not weeks i just want to ask you about some of the senate races are there any races out there where republicans are trying to hold a seat with the exception of pennsylvania which we'll get to but some of these other ones like north carolina wisconsin Ohio, Florida, maybe even uh, Utah. Are there any places where Republicans currently hold seats where they are in danger of losing a Senate seat?
0: Other than Pennsylvania,
3: not really, no. Okay, which brings us then to Pennsylvania. That one has been moving. It's been moving for weeks. It was looking like a long shot or even a lost cause for the Republicans And Dr. Oz getting closer and closer to John Fetterman attacking him on crime and other issues as well. Fetterman, I think, has an awful record, and that's just my editorial comment. Then we had this debate on Tuesday, which, you know, sometimes you say something must be a game-changer, then it turns out not to be. It's hard to imagine that not having any impact. What can you tell us about Pennsylvania, and are you guys in the field there right now? What's the latest?
0: Uh, We will be this weekend. And uh, what I can tell you is the most recent polling in that it came from Matt Towery and Fighter Advantage, the guy that I'm quite often on Hannity with Uh, when I do that show. um, People are familiar familiar with Matt. Uh, He is one of the best in the business. And so if if we don't do it and Matt did it, I'm I'm, I'm confident in it. And Matt shows uh, Oz now up by three. And um, I believe he showed even um, uh, Mastriano better than his previous poll. So I I think that that one is moving uh, quite possibly into uh, a a stronger lead for Oz. Uh, I've said from the very beginning, if Mastriano had received even half of what any other Republican nominee would receive as far as support and money, uh, Oz would be winning that thing by five. Uh, But it it is hurtful to the entire ticket that
3: that that has not happened. So you... I think I heard you say that we might see a Trafalgar-Pennsylvania poll sometime next week.
0: Yep. Yep, okay. you might very well see one. I think you should keep, keep a good eye on uh, what we're doing. All right. But, what, uh, what about Georgia? We're midst, yeah, we're in the midst of Polarama. There's a new poll on our Twitter every day between now and
3: the Monday before the election. <laughs> All right, so it'll be just a, a bonanza of new data uh, Georgia. Tell, tell us about Georgia and what you're seeing there.
0: Yeah, Georgia is one of our newest polls. Uh, since uh, before the debate, uh, three polls: us, Emerson, and uh, Matt Towery had an average of walker down by two point three. Since the debate, Landmark came back with a uh, one. Uh, an even. We had a two point four. Uh, Walker Advantage and I think uh yesterday Rasmussen had five and I'm already aware of one that's coming out that's gonna show Herschel up too and I know of two private polls that showed Herschel up. So I think Herschel has um I mean he weathered a horrible storm. The new accusations just nothing is gonna move people. You know, they they think putting Trout night Gloria alright to talk about some anonymous client's gonna work and everybody just thinks Oh, they're doing a Kavanaugh again. It doesn't yeah, mean anything.
3: Yeah, certainly among a lot of Republican voters, that's that's the suspicion at least. We only have a little bit of time left, Robert. So just quickly, Nevada, Arizona, New Hampshire, bottom line those races for us based on what you're seeing.
0: Uh, Nevada, I think Lexalt, uh wins wet, uh, solid. Uh, Arizona, excellent chance, uh, neck and neck. I, I'd say I think in the end, Masters is going to win it, uh, but it, it's going to be very, very close. And I, this is might be shocking, but I think the biggest mistake that the establishment has made is walking away from General Baldock. I think that guy is going to win this Senate seat
3: in New Hampshire. Wow. I mean, that would be quite something I mean, if, if Baldock wins in New Hampshire. Whoa! And let's maybe. Check back one more time before the election. Maybe late next week we'll be obsessively checking your Twitter over at Trafalgar every day with a new poll. Robert Cahaly is the chief pollster at Trafalgar. Robert, we really appreciate it. Let's talk to you hopefully next week. Sounds good. I always glad to be on your show. Yeah, uh, we really do appreciate it. It's just fascinating and very transparent, which is what I like. Whether you know you're going to agree or disagree, the numbers are what they are. The outcomes are going to be what they're going to be. And he just puts it out there. Here's what we're doing. Here's how we're doing it. And a lot of people scoff, but, I mean, they shouldn't scoff so much, given what's happened the last few cycles and what Trafalgar's done. All right, we've got a break real quick. We'll take that break and be right back.
2: The Guy Benson Show.
3: All right, time for your phone calls. We're taking your calls, 833-456-1300. What is your number one issue that you're voting on? Call us, 833-456-1300, next.
2: Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
3: It's a brand new hour here on this Friday, getting close to Halloween, getting close to the election. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free, on demand every day, including the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. On social media, Twitter and Instagram, it's the same handle, at Guy Benson Show. Please give us a follow. Check out our content there. Fox News alert as we get going here. Big day for the Dow, up 828 points, closing out the week at 32,861. Well, right before the end of the last hour, I very quickly gave out the phone number. I wanted to sort of set up this call topic a little bit more extensively and more thoroughly, but we went so long with our guest, very interesting pollster from Trafalgar, that, that was my bad. I had to just, like, give you the phone number, like, blurt it out. Let's reset here. 833-456. And we will get to your calls. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. Toll-free connection here to the Guy Benson Show. And this is the question that I have for you. Speaking of pollsters, there's a lot of conversation out there around what is motivating voters. What are the top priorities of voters? Are the Republicans better representative of what is driving the electorate than Democrats? And we've run through a lot of those numbers. You hear buzzwords. You hear topics like inflation, economy, crime, immigration, abortion, democracy, right? Guns. Often people are given this whole laundry list. What is your number one issue that people have to choose from this list? And then people like me look at the results and we talk about them endlessly as we get closer and closer to an election. I want to just do a non-scientific poll of this audience. Call us, 833-456-1300, and tell us very simply where you're calling from and what is the number one issue this year for you. If you've already voted in the early voting, you plan to vote early, you're going to vote on Election Day. What is the number one item or issue set or driver that is sending you to the polls? What is motivating you personally the most? Is it the cost of everything for you and your family, inflation? Right, or broader economic concerns? Like everyone has their own story. People talk about being concerned about crime. For some people, that's very, very personal. You're not just a little nervous about what you see on the news. You're nervous about what might be happening down the block from you or to a friend's relative or what have you. So rather than taking a phone call from a pollster, which, by the way, I've never done, I've never gotten a poll call. I've never been, I'm probably one of the weirdos who would sit there for 20 minutes and do it. But I've never been polled. This is your opportunity, sort of in a casual way, it's not a scientific poll here on the Guy Benson show, but to tell us why you are voting and what is motivating you. Number one, I'm sure, look, we're, com- we're complex people. Sometimes we have different things that motivate us, and sometimes there are you know, cross currents, like, okay, it's these four things, and maybe three of them go in one direction, but the other one goes in the other direction, then you kind of make a final judgment for yourself. I'm asking you to try to boil it down to just one one issue that's motivating you i have my own answer that i might reveal to you and i've thought a lot about this but i want to hear from you 833-456-1300 833-456-1300 all right they're telling me just to give you mine i'll give you mine and we'll get to your calls i know that you're waiting patiently and i'm cheating a little bit because i care about so many different issues the the theme The theme that is driving me to vote, and by the way, I just voted this week. I did an early vote in Virginia a few days ago. By far, the theme for me is accountability. Look at what is happening in this country. Look at the series of debacles and disasters from this administration and their aiders and abettors in Congress. You can go down the list on so many different issues someone has to send a message to the ruling party, the people in charge, that we are not okay with this. They're never going to learn it through the media. The media is on their side. They're never going to fire anyone except for the occasional sacrificial lamb. The only way they will learn a lesson is by people forcing a lesson on them at the ballot box with a loss of their power. That's it. So for me, it is accountability. Accountability. 833-456-1300, what is your top issue? Let's start in Georgia. Neha is up first. Neha, I'm so glad that you're listening. I hope I'm saying your name correctly.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what I'm worried about is the economy. I'm a graduating student this coming year. I have a job, but something that a lot of my classmates and I are worried about is our jobs going to be secure when we start in in, um, June or July.
3: Yeah, I think that's fair because there's a lot of folks worried about what's coming next, a, you know, a double dip or a deeper recession. I came out of school, Neha, when I was, let's see, 2007. You got the jobs, you were sort of okay, then 08 hit and it was really scary. A lot of people couldn't get hired or lost their jobs. It was dicey there for me for a while. So I I kind of remember some of that anxiety. How old are you if you don't mind me asking?
4: I'm 21.
3: Well, I mean, congratulations in advance on the, on the uh, graduation that's impending. Congratulations to having a job lined up. That's awesome. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, fingers crossed for you. And can I ask you who you're planning to vote for?
4: Uh, I'm definitely voting for Kemp. And for Senate, it's hard because I don't like Warnock, obviously. I don't like Walker, so that's a tough one.
3: All right, I'm deciding
4: whether to vote for Walker and hold my nose or stay home.
3: All right. I think that that – well, but you're not going to stay home, right? You're voting for Kemp, but you might leave it blank. Yeah, yeah it's a numbers much, game. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I'd probably be right there with you if I lived in Georgia. I think I might hold the nose. I think. I'm not sure. Definitely all in for Kemp. Neha, that's awesome that you're listening in 21. Fantastic stuff. Please keep listening. 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. What is your top issue? For that soon-to-be college graduate, for her, it's the overall economic situation. Let's hear from Dan calling from Wisconsin. Dan, welcome. Oh, he just dropped. (laughs) He just dropped right before we went to him. Oh, I guess our system crashed. Okay. Let's give you the phone number. We're going to reboot it. Call us, 833-456-1300. We will get those calls queued back up. We're going to quickly break, come back with more of your phone calls, 833-456-1300. The question on the table for the audience, the number one issue that you're going to be voting on this year. If you had to boil it down to just one, tell us what it is and why, and if you're comfortable, who you plan to vote for. 833-456-1300. We'll be back after this on The Guy Benson Show.
2: Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show.
3: Welcome back to the Guy Benson Show. Our phone number, 833-456-1300. 833-456-1300. The question on the table, what is motivating you to vote this year? Your number one issue. And right before the break, our system glitched. All the calls, we had full lines. All the calls went away. Christine's freaking out, but we've got people back on the line. They're packed again. 833-456-1300. Let's go to New York, Rome, New York. Mary, thanks for listening.
6: My My biggest issue this year is border security and the immigration crisis.
3: And may I ask if you're comfortable sharing who you plan to vote for or if you've already voted?
6: I have not already voted. I'm going to vote right on Election Day, and I plan to vote Republican, Lee Zeldin, anybody like that.
3: <laughs> yeah. Do you do you get the sense that there's really this surge in New York for Zeldin against Hochul? Is that real?
6: I You know, I really think so. Of course, I'm central New York upstate. I really sure. have heard on the ground people saying that he's got a chance. This might be the year we can flip it.
3: All right, there we go. We'll see. Mary, thank you for listening. Thanks for the call. 833-456-1300. You got a New Yorker saying the border crisis is their number one issue. It's because every state is now effectively a border state because of this chaos. The human trafficking, the drug trafficking, et cetera. 833-456-1300. Larry is in North Carolina. Larry, so glad you called. Welcome.
7: Thank you, sir. Uh, My biggest uh, issue is the economy. And then follow close by the border.
3: And when you say the economy, like what, how do you think about that? What specifically?
7: Well, it's everything. It's everything from the cost of food to uh, fuel. I'm recently retired. The 401K taken a huge hit to the point where I'm even thinking about going back to work.
3: Mm. And if you're comfortable telling us if you voted or planning to vote later, what's your game plan?
7: Yeah, me and my wife—we both early voted yesterday, and we both voted straight Republican ticket. It's—I hate to, to vote a straight ticket, but all the Democrats are just—they're just too scary. Um, yeah. As we were nice. going into the polling place, uh, one of the Democratic solicitors was trying to give us pam- Democratic pamphlets. I told her, I said, "You know, we're already—we uh, already know who we're voting for. I appreciate it," and I was very polite. And then, as I was, we were walking away, she yelled to me and said, "Can I?" Ask you one thing, please keep an open mind. Open mind of what? I mean, that's
8: just yeah.
7: <laughs> yeah. You know,
3: well, anyway. okay. I mean, I, you're not alone. Let me put it that way, Larry. You are not alone. Not just in North Carolina, but around the country. I think that sentiment that you just explained and expressed uh, is is pretty widely held. Thanks for the call. Really glad you're listening. Eight three three four five six thirteen hundred. Let's see. Let's go to the West Coast. Neil is out in Oregon, the Pacific Northwest. Neil, hi.
7: Hello. Hey, uh, Guy, gas and diesel. If we can't afford gas and diesel, this country comes to a stop.
3: Can I ask you a question about Oregon? I know the Republicans feel like they might have a shot in that governor's (laughs) race out there. You live there. What do you think?
7: Christine Drazen all the way you got to right. have Republicans because this Democrat stuff is not working.
3: It is, I think, a sign of the times that a Republican nominee or a Republican candidate for governor in Oregon has a very realistic chance of winning. She's been ahead in a number of these polls. It's awfully close. Neil, appreciate you being out there in Oregon. Sometimes it's pretty crazy out there. Try to stay sane if you can. 833-456-1300. Let's see, Maryland in the DMV. Frank, you are up next on The Guy Benson Show.
8: Yeah, uh, my number one issue is trust, which blends into basically, I I don't think that many Democrats, uh, other than some of the elites and academics who intentionally are trying to do uh, things that aren't great for the country, uh, I think a lot of them don't even know how to trust uh, themselves enough to see that, uh, the obvious issues related to the economy, for instance, and the easy, well, easy, but straightforward ways to fix it as far as energy independence and reduction in, uh, spending. Um, and I think that, 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 that just drives all the issues for me. And even like in the Herschel Walker case, he's got some funny stuff in his past, but it seems like he's, he's come up to, um, He's been honest about it for a long time. So, you know, even in that case, uh, I I can't find a Democrat that I feel the same way about anywhere. So
3: trust. It comes down to trust for you, Frank in Maryland. Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. 833-456-1300. What is your number one issue? There's a bunch out there. If you had to pick one as you head to the polls, what is animating you this year? Let's go back to Georgia. Paula is listening on our great affiliate, 106.3 Extra. Paula, welcome to the Guy Benson Show.
6: Hey, hey Guy. My um, biggest
3: issue is inflation. How's it affecting you?
6: Well, um going to the grocery store, buying gas. I live on a fixed income of Social Security disability. And when there's no extra coming in and no way to get extra, it just puts a hurting on you
3: yeah you're so squeezed i mean it's just so tough and obviously you know the democrats say oh, it's not our fault it's happening all over the world but it's worse here than a lot of places and even their own economists say it's because they keep spending all this crazy amount of money now paula if you're willing to tell us down there in georgia what's your game plan on voting this year
6: um i voted yesterday when a straight republican ticket
3: all right kemp walker and the rest
6: I did, even though, I mean, they all have their flaws and their issues, but there's not a one of us that lives that don't have flaws and issues. But I just can't vote Democratic because I just don't trust what they're doing. I mean, they're putting our country in such a hard financial situation that it's just going to be hard to get out of. It's going to be hard on our future generations to come back from.
3: So. Yeah. and it's hard on you right now. That's the other thing, right? It's the future, it's the I, it's the present, it's just absolutely. it's tough. Well, Paula, I'm glad you're absolutely. out there. I'm glad you're listening. Really appreciate it. Thanks for being vulnerable and thanks for sharing that with us here on the show today. Uh, we do appreciate it. 833-456 1300 833 What is driving your vote more than anything in the 2022 midterms? We're getting so close. Everyone's polling it. We know what the polls say. What is your reality in your life? Let's go to Luke, Long Island, New York. You're up next. Hi, Luke. Hi. My number one issue is crime. Tell us about that. Why?
6: I work in midtown Manhattan, and the crime is crazy. Some of the women that I work with have to leave the office early to make sure that they get home before it gets dark out. I don't understand this. the the people are pushing people in front of the subway and running away. I just don't get it. I don't know what's going on.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, it's like every day there's some horrible story coming out of New York. And then even some of the stuff is sort of spilling into the suburbs as well. Long Island's interesting. I mean, there's discussion that Ron DeSantis might be coming up to campaign for Lee Zeldin in the coming days. Uh, Glenn Youngkin is coming to Westchester County to, to stump for Lee Zeldin. I wonder if they're seeing in the polling that this is real, that Hochul might actually lose. What do you think? W- when you talk to your friends and colleagues, could a Democratic governor actually lose in your state for real? I think so. I think, I think this is the year. Lee Zeldin all the way. All right. I mean, it's I still I have trouble believing. I mean, that would be the upset of the cycle if it happened, but I'm not completely writing it off. Hochul well, is I'll not looking. That,
6: there, there are Zeldin signs all over the place. I think the town that I live in is pretty blue, honestly, and there's Zeldin signs all over the place, and I don't see any Hokel signs.
3: Yeah, and and she she's not acting like a confident leader in a and a confident candidate right now that that is certainly true and the polling shows it certainly tightening so luke we will see very soon thanks for the call 833-456-1300 down to florida rob you're up on the guy benson show hello
8: Hey, thanks, guy. My issue is education. I'm a father with three school-age kids, and it seems the it, the direction things are going nationwide is has been to cut parents out of the process and promote a worldview rather than the education they actually need.
3: Have you voted already, or are you waiting for Election Day?
8: Not yet. It'll be on Election Day. I want some
3: time to research my local candidates.
8: All right, and then statewide,
3: Republicans, or split ticket, or what?
8: Statewide, yeah. I'm an independent, no party, and four years ago I did not vote for DeSantis, but he has 100% earned my trust these past four years. So I'm, go. I'm going with the Republican this year.
3: All right, Robin, Florida, thanks for the call. Very quickly, Cynthia in Minnesota. Cynthia, 10 seconds, what's your big issue?
6: i I'm voting straight Republican. I haven't voted yet. It'll be Election Day. I'm pro-life, and got to say I love Christine. She's great.
3: Oh, so do we. And that's a great call to end on. An abortion voter, just not the way Democrats were hoping for. (laughs) Great calls. Thank you all for weighing in on The Guy Benson Show. We continue right after this.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk. Guy Benson.
3: We are halfway through the Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com podcast is free every day. And it's time for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. So this is a callback to a story that we covered two years ago. It was part of the absolute insanity that was 2020. Just occasionally go back and look at news headlines over the summer of 2020 and into the fall. Even ignoring the presidential campaign, what an absolute basket case this country was. I understand that there was the pandemic on and people were dying and people were locked in their homes and all that disruption. It just went well beyond that. There was a lot of unrest, including violent unrest in the streets of many American cities. Following the murder of George Floyd, some people took that incident upon themselves, took that opportunity to wreak havoc to commit crimes, to loot, to steal, to riot, to commit arson, even to kill. And while there were, I think, some changes needed in some cases, and certainly justice needed to be brought to the murderer, which, by the way, happened over the course of time, using our criminal justice system, not through mob violence, the mob side of it was very scary. And it was, in some cases, cheered on, encouraged, at least indulged or ignored by a lot of people in politics, mostly in the Democratic Party. And the left-wing grassroots in this country, the activist class, that element found itself in the grips of a mania. And the cancel culture, woke mob stuff was as psychotic as I've ever seen it over a, a span of roughly a year. So that is the era that we're going back to here for today's Woke Tales. There was a guy at the New York Times named James Bennett. He was one of the opinion editors there. And when there was riding in the streets and chaos and lawlessness, you'll recall that Senator Tom Cotton, Republican of Arkansas, penned an op-ed that was published in the New York Times calling for the National Guard, the troops to come into some major cities and restore order. was a controversial take, although polling at the time determined that most Americans actually agreed with Senator Cotton. Right? It's upsides, downsides. You can make an argument in either direction, but it wasn't some sort of really out-of-control, scary, frightening, unconscionable suggestion by a U.S. senator. Again, as I said at the time, staring at all of the horrible images happening all across the country and looking at our screens with this stuff playing out seemingly every night, most Americans agreed with Cotton at the time. So he wrote the op-ed piece in the New York Times. They published it. James Bennett was responsible for that. And an absolute meltdown ensued within the newsroom, within the New York Times, which was kind of like ground zero of wokery, certainly in the mainstream media, where you had predominantly young Hyper woke so-called journalists basically just calling the shots for that newspaper based on whatever their sensibilities demanded. Almost like a religion where the rules change constantly based on this mob consensus, which is extremely capricious and inconsistent and hyperbolic. It's almost you know a feature of this pseudo religion that they had. And you saw some of the ringleaders like the 1619 Project Lady and others saying, you know, this is an outrage that we publish this. In fact, the publication of this op-ed by a U.S. senator in our pages makes journalists of color at the New York Times physically unsafe. Not it's troubling or it's alarming or it's triggering or anything like that. No, physically unsafe. The words are literally dangerous for people of color working in the newsroom, which is just a crazy thing to say. But it was very quickly established as the dominant thought, or at least the bullying thought that got its way inside the New York Times. So for the crime of publishing an op-ed by a sitting United States senator expressing a sentiment shared by most Americans, James Bennett was fired. He lost his job. A scalp was claimed in the name of wokeness and equity and racial justice or whatever. A total embarrassment. I don't know James Bennett. I've never met him. I may never meet him. I'm sure he is not a conservative. But that was wrong, what happened to him. And it was just sort of caught up in this very strange dogmatic moment. And his career was sacrificed on the altar of wokeness, and the leadership of the newspaper, absolutely gutless. They had had a few other incidents where they ended up letting people go because of these same similar demands from the same types of people. In this case, they just were like, oh, sorry, don't hate us, we're firing him, don't you worry. So just recently, this guy, Bennett, has written a piece sort of publicly reacting to the whole thing, two years later, for the first time in a really meaningful way, and he's obviously angry and still bitter about it, I think he should be. He said that he was treated basically like garbage by the newspaper. His loyalty to the institution and professionalism was weaponized against him. And he found himself out on his rear end without a job because of this whirlwind. That was just, again, manic. There was no rationality to it. There was no sense of actual proportion or justice or fairness. It was just, you remember how everything felt, just these whipped up, controversies, and the more influence lefty wokesters had in a certain scenario, the worse it was within those contexts. So finally, weeks after James Bennett wrote his piece, Eric Wemple, who's a media critic at the Washington Post, has written, I think, a good story about what happened, looking back on it, admitting candidly that the reason that a lot of people didn't stand up for Bennett as they should have at the time including Wemple himself, was because they were scared of the mob. They were scared of what the mob would do to them and their careers, which I think is, of course, accurate, but also quite telling. Here's another little nugget from Wemple's piece. Quote, We have asked about 30 New York Times staffers whether they still believe their danger tweets, And whether there was any merit in Bennett's retort. Not one of them replied with an on-the-record defense. Such was the depth of conviction behind a central argument in La Faire Cotton. Right, so they all lined up and declared themselves in physical danger. Or their colleagues of color in physical, literal danger. Because of words printed in a newspaper by Tom Cotton which is why they said Bennett had to go. And here we are, two years hence, and Eric Wemple contacted and called up dozens of them, people who went along with the crowd, and not a single one of them would defend that position that they stated at the time on the record, not one. What cowards. Absolutely craven. They were scared for their own career. They were caught up in this moment of nuttiness and they were willing to send a colleague to the unemployment line for no reason just to save their own ass that's what it was they don't believe it they didn't believe it they won't defend it now I'm sure they're annoyed that anyone's asking questions about it and that's another important thing to think about and to remember about the mob when you empower the mob and you cave to the mob I'm not saying you never apologize if you've done something wrong then apologize And there should be consequences for behavior that's bad. I'm not saying that because we're upset with cancel culture, there's no such thing ever as accountability. I'm just saying it has gotten totally distorted and twisted and has gone way too far. And when you allow mobs like this to call the shots, not only do they develop a taste for blood, basically, and it reinforces itself in a very toxic way, you are also empowering people who ultimately are very weak and very cowardly. They are bullies who need to be confronted, not catered to, not capitulated to. I'm not sure it's really a lot of comfort to James Bennett that, oh, now it can be said years later that he got a raw deal. Although, interestingly, and sort of amusingly, I'm seeing some lefties talking about this whole episode, sort of the clearing of the air years later, as something of a breakthrough moment, and proof now that we've moved past the craziness of the worst throes of cancel culture. Like, okay, the conservatives can calm down now. Things are reaching an equilibrium again. Except I don't believe that. I don't know why we should believe that. It took them two years, in many cases, to admit how grotesquely unfair this episode was. Has the dynamic changed where the next time there's a big, angry mob in a workplace or in some sort of environment led by people who have a lot of political capital and they're wielding it like weapons on purpose because it's empowering and it's fun and they get a rush from it. And that's happening. And they're the types of people that you are kind of scared of and you want to have your career continue. Do you think the outcome next time would be different? Or would we wait another two years for the confessionals and the apologies? What does James Bennett get? to make up for what happened to him. Nothing. By the way, one more note, only tangentially related, but since I brought up Senator Tom Cotton, let me remind you that he was also one of the people, one of the leading adherents to the theory that COVID was a virus that was genetically engineered and escaped from a lab. He was putting that out there long before a lot of other people were. He wasn't saying he knew for a fact, but he was saying, hey, this is possible. He was pilloried as an agent of disinformation, dangerous. This stuff was censored. He was ripped to shreds by the supposed arbiters of truth in our society. The whole possibility that it might have escaped from a lab was labeled disinformation by people who then sort of scuttled that. Months later, oh, well, well, second thought, maybe never mind. Just like maybe the Hunter Biden laptop wasn't disinformation, but then they'll just move on to the next thing to label disinformation in order to disqualify a conversation that they don't want to have or to wield power or to you name it, whatever their new agenda is. Use the D word with no reflection about their big misfires previously like this one. I raised the issue because we haven't really talked about COVID in a while. And the fact that we still don't have a definitive answer on how this thing started that led to millions of deaths worldwide, that is disturbing to me. I think the reason that we don't have the answer is because the Chinese Communist Party ensured that we wouldn't get it by not allowing real investigations, destroying evidence, lying, etc. But there is a new Senate report out this week. I see one scientist who used to be much more critical of the lab leak theory He's quoting the Senate report that says, quote, based on the analysis of the publicly available information, it appears reasonable to conclude that the COVID-19 pandemic was more likely than not the result of a research related incident, End quote. That is not definitive. That's not a final answer, but now a more likely than not assessment, which sounds about right to me. And yet exactly those types of sentences were verboten, suppressed, censored, decried as misinformation and disinformation. And once again, it was Tom Cotton getting clobbered on a lot of it. Dr. Fauci went out of his way to tamp down that theory, to downplay it, to dismiss it. Oh, and one of his buddies sent him an email that we found out about later, thanking him personally for doing so, for downplaying the theory. That guy ran an organization that steered a lot of American money, taxpayer money to wait for it the wuhan institute of virology we cover this at the time i just want to make sure that we don't forget about it it's a really huge thing that happened and some people asking the right kinds of questions were stifled and attacked and assailed and i'm not sure dr fauci has ever really adequately accounted for some of the dirty work he and others did to discredit an active plausible if not probable theory at the time and it very much felt like politics there as well so a bit of a meandering segment here i wanted to bring some of this to your attention it all comes back down to woke tales in the end and with that we will step aside we will come right back with much more of the guy benson show still to come
2: fresh conservative talk guy benson show
7: Today, the most common price of gas in America is $3.39, down from over $5 when I took off. We need to keep making that progress by having energy companies bring down the cost of a gallon of gas. That reflects the cost they're paying for a barrel of oil.
3: Back on the Guy Benson show, there's a lot of illiteracy and wrongness there that we just heard from President Biden in New York yesterday. But we can start with the most obvious one. He said it's 3.39 a gallon now on average, and it's a lot higher a lot of places, I will just point out. He said, quote, down from over $5 a gallon when I took office. Fact check, pants on fire, 18 Pinocchios on fire. We all remember that. When Biden took office, gas was less than half of $5 a gallon for gasoline. It spiked up to $5 on his watch. That is not what he inherited as he said and claimed in New York yesterday. It's at two thirty-nine or so when he took office, not $5. Is he lying? Does he not know? Does he not remember? Is it confusion, dishonesty? It's hard to tell sometimes with him. But he also said this and cut 12.
7: So economic growth is up. The price of inflation is down. Real incomes are, on, are up, and the price of gas is down. Folks, continue to spend but now a more stable pace than during our rapid recovery last
3: year. I mean, he's bragging about this stuff, and we've told you, Democratic pollsters say this is an extremely poor talking point. It works the opposite way than they would hope. It turns people off when they try to brag this way. It's also wrong. Since Biden took office, economic growth has been negative in the last two quarters, now anemic but back up. In the last quarter, people expecting, in many cases, a double-digit recession to come. Inflation is not down. It is still way up near 40-year highs with a couple bad reports in a row, worse than expected. Real incomes are down, not going up. The price of gas is way up, despite his lies like the one we just debunked. Like, it's just night and day, up is down. Opposite stuff. From Joe Biden, just lying like crazy all over the place. People aren't buying it, but I think it's always important to set the record straight. Oh, and by the way, in case you're wondering if the administration has any doubt, any self-reflection, any mood or appetite to change, shift course, KJP was asked about it, at least on the personnel side, Just a few days ago, cut 21.
6: Polls show that uh, voters at this point, the primary concern heading into the midterms is inflation in the economy. By a two-to-one margin, voters trust Republicans more than Democrats to handle the economy. I wonder, given this sort of majority sentiment of voters, is the president considering making any changes to his economic team after the midterms?
1: No.
3: Is he considering making any changes to the economic team after the midterms? KJP? No. In short... Nah, we're good. We got this. That's their attitude. If you agree, you know what to do in 11 days. If not, well, there's another choice. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Josh Crosshour is here. We will go race by race across the country. A lot of political analysis ahead of the midterms to come when we return. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. Our final hour, starting right now, is the happy hour sponsored by our good friends over at The Finish Long Drink, which is terrific. We have a six-pack with us as we're visiting friends this weekend. Make sure that we can enjoy that responsibly. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold. They're expanding. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. All the ways to listen live, including through our great affiliates, the live stream, the app, Fox Nation, our partners at Odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. You have options. And if you can't listen for the three hours as we air, there's a podcast for that. Always on demand, always free, totally free, the whole show. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, Instagram and Twitter, under new management these days, as you've heard. At Guy Benson Show is our handle on both of those platforms. With us now is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, it is always good to have you.
5: Hey, great to be back on the show, Guy.
3: All right, so it's time for our weekly check-in and our vibe check, if you will. It seems to me that Republicans are feeling more optimistic and bullish than perhaps at any time In the last couple of months, as we are now about a week and a half away from Election Day, are they justified in feeling that way in your book?
5: Look, Guy, I've always said in these final few weeks, follow where the money is being spent on television advertising. And if you look on the House campaign side, we just saw a couple million dollars this week spent in Mikey Sherrill's district by a big Democratic super PAC, in Josh Gottheimer's district in North Jersey. These, These are Cheryl's district, Biden won by seventeen points. Uh, Gottheimer was by, I believe, twelve points by for Biden. The, these these are not just like leaning Democratic districts; these are pretty solidly blue districts where Democrats are now in the final couple of weeks spending a good sum of money, and it tells you everything you need to know about where where the where the vibes are, <laughs> as we've talked about that what looked like a, a good Republican year for for much of uh, the fall uh, is now looking like a, a really Uh, significant wave election, a potential big wave election that could sweep Republicans, not just in control of of the House, but give them a a decent majority in the United States Senate as well.
3: Yeah, but you're seeing, as you're pointing out here, some Biden plus 10 to even plus 20 districts where money's coming in, where the Democrats are looking worried, or at least acting that way. And your follow the money axiom, I think, makes sense, especially here in the home stretch of a campaign. I will ask you, just devil's advocate on the other side of this, I'm sure you saw the New York Times-Siena polling of, I think, four house races, and they selected them, sort of scattered across the country, Kansas, New Mexico, a few others, Virginia, and the lead of their story that they wrote about their polling suggested, like, oh, here comes a red wave, but when you look at the actual results of that house polling, which has been really few and far between, the polling in house races has been scant this cycle. The Democrats are leading in all four of the races, at least the ones that I saw, including a Republican incumbent right on the rope. So I see some people on social media and lefties saying, you know, this is all an overblown narrative. The Democrats are leading in all of these polls. Why is the New York Times framing it this way? What do you make of that?
5: Well, look, uh, I always like to say don't just rely on the polling. Follow the polling, but also file, talk, report to Report on the campaigns, look at what's going on on the ground, follow the money, look at the fundamentals. There's a whole lot of things that go into analyzing uh, politics. And, look, I I think uh, I've talked to Democrats and Republicans, I think a couple of those – results are a little bit uh, bullish on Democrats. I mean, it's not consistent with the data they, they, they've been looking at. So, I mean, look, you have a, one of the problems with House race polling is, you know, for Senate races, for presidential campaigns, you've got dozens and dozens of polls. So you can, there may be an outlier here or there, but you can see that it, it's a little bit outside the, the average results. These are like the first public polls in all of these races. So we don't know if they're out a lot. It's hard to really get a sense of a larger context. And look, I, I talked to the Republican and Democratic campaign strategists, folks who do polling on a regular basis. Um, and look, some of these races are going to be close, like Pennsylvania 8. Uh, that's one of the races they polled. It's in Scranton, Pennsylvania. It's a Trump-leaning district. And, and the Democrat there is running neck and neck with uh, the Republican. It's a very, very competitive race. Now, the Times poll, I think, had the, the Democratic congressman at 50%, had him up by like six or seven points. You know, that's not, ex- it's a little more bullish for Democrats than I've been hearing from the campaigns themselves. But look, the, the, these, these are battlegrounds. And yeah, I think the, the overall trajectory Uh, is is that these races are going to be close uh, for the most part. Um, But look, I I, I think it's – I kind of wish the New York Times did polling in these races throughout the year so we could see the trend lines, so we could see sort of the larger context. Um, They kind of – I guess they just went in to to do these uh, four races at the very last minute. And without the polling – available, uh, without much public polling in these districts, it, it is a little bit risky to kind of draw any wide conclusions with with just these results in these individual races.
3: Yeah, you're sort of scrounging around for scraps in the data because there's not a lot out there. But of course, a lot of these campaigns have their own well-funded, robust internal polling mechanisms. And that's what you start to hear about through the grapevine or from the campaigns themselves. I guess last question on the House front, right, the lower chamber of Congress I've heard some conservatives, Republicans over the last few months talking about, will the Republicans end up with 230 seats in the House? Could it be 240? Some of the people who are really feeling good have said, hey, they could maybe even get to 250. To get to 250 would really require an enormous wave, right? Like, what's a realistic range in your mind right now?
5: Yeah, um, so I think the Fox uh, Fox Power Rankings had a number around – two thirty three. But they have a twenty seat pickup on average, uh, in, in, in sort of the latest latest uh analysis. And I think that's a pretty pretty solid number in that you know, twenty a, a twenty seat pickup, a two that would be, I believe, two thirty three Republican House seats. That would be more seats than Newt Gingrich had in the aftermath of the nineteen ninety four Republican Revolution. It would be a little bit less than the twenty ten wave of, that Republicans had during the Tea Party wave not that long ago. But you know, twenty seats would be a very good night. It would be a you know a category three type wave for Republicans. If it was thirty seats, if you got to two forty to a little over two forty, that would be. You know, historical that would be near near the near the all-time high at least in in the 20th century, 21st century for the Republican Party. So you know, the the reality is Republicans already picked up a good number of seats in in the last election. Right. So they they are you know 30 35 seats if they get that that number that would be uh, that would get get you close to two forty five 245, 250, and that would be near uh, an all-time high for Republicans, at least since the 1920s.
3: Yeah, 2014, I think, was 247, and that was a big wave year for the Republicans, where the Senate really broke late. So let's talk about the Senate, Josh, and let's start in Pennsylvania. We haven't gotten your take on that debate on Tuesday night. We've talked about it a lot here, as you might imagine. The actual debate itself, the spin, I think a lot of it extremely delusional afterwards, and just people – Wish casting. There have now been two different polls that I've seen showing Dr. Oz pulling into the lead in that race. I'm not guaranteeing an Oz win. I think the chances of an Oz win are better than they ever have been. uh, Certainly after we all saw what we saw Tuesday night. What do you think of the debate? What do you think of how it plays? And where is that race right now?
5: So, we reported at axios uh, I, I talked to a bunch of Democrats in the immediate aftermath of, of the debate, and uh, they, they they were panicked. I mean, it was one democratic congressman I, I talked to who is a big supporter of John Fetterman said that that was a disaster um, on the debate stage now, look. We are in a very partisan time in our country (laughs) that that people are not necessarily voting on which candidate they like better or even on on, on whether they think Fetterman is ready to be or healthy enough to be a United States senator. They're they're, they're voting on which party they want to have control of of, of Congress. They're voting – they're putting their red and blue jerseys on for the most part. So I don't think the numbers are going to dramatically move in in, in Oz's direction, but I think those – Two polls you cite seem to suggest that there's a little bit of momentum post-debate for dr oz and when you combine the national mood of the country and the trends individually in that Pennsylvania race with both Fetterman's health but also his position on crime and the position on fracking that came up in the mm-hmm. debate um, this week, that the, the momentum definitely is in Dr. Oz's direction. But look, it's, it's close, and, and I don't think you're going to see the type of dramatic shifts that you used to see when you had a bad debate performance or you had a big oh, development yeah, no, in I the am, campaign.
3: I am by no means saying that Oz is now going to come out there and you know blow the doors off and win by 10 or something like that. But all he had to do was maybe move the numbers two or three points. And that could have been enough for him to win. And I think that there is at least some evidence that that is happening. There are undecided people. There are late breakers. There are people who would look at something like that and say, "Okay, this one guy, I was already nervous about him. I was concerned about his positions. I don't agree with him on X, Y and Z. And now that debate performance, he couldn't really express his thoughts clearly at all. That can tip a very, very close race. But as you point out, there have been other Seeming campaign enders are people declaring things over in very recent memory for candidates on both sides who then just sort of weathered the storm and the partisans stayed home and the winds blew a certain direction and they won. I think maybe one of the challenges for Fetterman is the winds nationally are blowing the wrong direction for him on top of everything else. Uh, so we'll be watching that one as closely as ever. We've been really harping on that race for weeks here on the show. Georgia, another interesting one. It seems like there's uh, momentum for Herschel Walker, anti-momentum potentially for Raphael Warnock. Josh, where is Georgia in your mind?
5: Yeah, that that is uh, one of the closest and, and almost hard. It's a hard to read race. The polling has been a little bit all over the map, but the. the The national mood is certainly favoring Republicans, and it does feel like Herschel Walker has gotten past the the biggest, roughest stretch of the campaign dealing with the allegations from the ex-girlfriend about the uh, the alleged abortion that that occurred uh, many years ago. Um, Look, I – a lot of – Expectations are that this is going to head to a runoff. That in Georgia, it's the only state that you need 50 percent of that of that vote to win outright, and and it looks like it's possible we could actually have another month of a campaign uh, like we did two, just two years ago. Um, so I, I think I think it's a very close race. Warnock is running a very good campaign, but he's dealing with some really really tough uh, headwinds. A really tough, a tough environment for his party. I think the best case scenario may be for Democrats that Warnock goes to a runoff, and maybe if Republicans already take the Senate, maybe he has a better chance in, in, a, in, a, in a, another subsequent campaign but look that is that is a, a toss up of toss ups I think that that is going to be one of the closest races when we, when it comes to election night
3: you know the prospect of a runoff election for the u s Senate in Georgia potentially with control of the senate on the line again it just makes me a little bit nauseated i hope it doesn't come to that but it might i guess we'll see josh krasauer let's pause take a timeout right here when we come back hopscotch across the country to a couple very important races i want to pick your brain about josh krasauer our guest on the guy benson show more analysis next
2: you're listening to guy benson
3: We are back. It's the happy hour. Josh Krasauer of Axios and a Fox News radio contributor is here on the broadcast. And right before the break, we were talking about house races. We got to Pennsylvania. We went down to Georgia. Meanwhile, skipping out west, Nevada is just sort of steady as she goes. Laxalt slightly ahead. The machine for the Democrats, not what it used to be. Again, those headwinds for the Democrats uh, asserting themselves a little bit. Not a race that is over by any stretch. Cortez Masto can still win, but I think you'd rather be Laxalt than her. Uh, You can agree or disagree, Josh, if you want to. And then if you just uh, hop, skip, and a jump away in Arizona, this one is interesting. We had Blake Masters on the show earlier today. A bunch of different experts from Politico to Cook Political Report have now moved this race back to where I think it was always going to end up, which is a toss-up. Even though Mark Kelly has spent Blake Masters into oblivion. It hasn't really made the difference. The polling, at least publicly, is showing a very close race. I have heard that the private polling reflects that and and is perhaps even a little bit uh, exciting for Republicans, particularly the way that the governor's race is going out there. What is your take, Josh? Maybe a quick comment on Nevada and then Arizona, which at least in my mind has moved from that second tier of possible races right up into that top tier.
5: So quickly on Nevada, that that is the best opportunity for Republicans to to win a seat, though I still think it's a a competitive race. You you heard Chuck Schumer uh, in a hot mic moment this past uh, week uh, talking about how he thought maybe Cortez Masto has kind of stopped the bleeding politically speaking. But, you know, look, I think if there's any Republican that is is in best position to to pick up a Democratic seat, it's it's Adam Laxalt. You know, Arizona is a fascinating contest one of the definitions I have of a political wave is that when you see a wave, it sweeps in candidates that may not be the best candidates, but they ride the political environment. They ride the the Republican tide. And that's what's happening in Arizona where, you know, Blake Masters has had challenges. His favorable numbers are not where a lot of Republicans would like them to be. But the, the, the mood of the voters in Arizona is to put a check on Democratic power to elect a Republican to the United States Senate. And Blake Masters is benefiting from that late uh, momentum, the late Republican momentum across the country. Uh, yeah. This is I, I've heard the same things that, that you do, Guy, that, that this is now a statistically neck-and-neck neck race Kelly may have a one-point advantage, two-point advantage, but he had a much bigger advantage a few weeks ago. And uh, look, Arizona is a battleground state, but it has a lot of Republican uh, roots, and it also has a very uh, uh, enthused conservative base right now that is eager to show up and, and vote Republican. So look, this is going to be a close race. and probably probably won't know a result in Arizona if it's going to be this close for a couple of days till after the election. And uh, Yeah, I mean, and you you mentioned the governor's race, too. uh, guy. Carrie Lake has pulled ahead in the governor's race, and she is certainly riding a whole wave of momentum. And that that is probably also helping Blake Masters down ballot in the Senate race. I
3: also think Masters has done pretty well in this final few-month stretch of the campaign. He had a very good debate, in my estimation. I think that maybe his struggles as a candidate were overblown, um, and he's – Maybe hit something of a stride, and we'll see if that carries him over the finish line in a few days. Quickly, Josh, New Hampshire, what's going on there?
5: Yeah, that is another state where, look, we we reported at Axios that. Mitch McConnell Super PAC actually stopped spending in that race, and yet the public polling and, and also the private polling I've heard still shows that as a competitive contest. Uh, I, I think Senator Hassan still has a small advantage, but it goes back to what, what I just said about a, a big wave. When you when you have a very big wave election, you don't need to be the candidate that has spent the most money. You don't need to be the candidate that you know is the best liked candidate. You just need a you know, ride that way, be on the ballot, not make too many mistakes, and, and ride ride the the, the the surge in Republican enthusiasm.
3: Josh, very, very briefly, before we let yeah. you go, I see that Glenn Youngkin, the Virginia governor, is now going to be campaigning for Lee Zeldin in Westchester County, New York, sort of the, the burbs of New York City, and now reports also emerging that Ron DeSantis is going to come up from Florida to do the same in New York. That's a wow for me. This is a very interesting race. The local people don't, sound or look very confident what's your read on new york very quickly yeah i I
5: think there's a a real possibility for an upset it's a governor's race so the the governor's races aren't 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 as partisan crime is the number one issue it's a major problem not just in the city but even in in, in other parts of the of the state and uh yeah zelden spent a lot of time in, in new york city focusing on non-white communities, a lot, a lot of diverse communities around the city, and that's something that to keep a close eye on. And there may be some surprising results in, inside New York State when it comes to the governor's race.
3: Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. Josh, enjoy the weekend, and we'll check in next week as we are getting down to crunch time. Thanks, Guy. We will step aside and come right back. On The Guy Benson Show, it's The Happy Hour.
2: You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson.
3: Back here on the happy hour on this Friday. Thanks for tuning in. At the very top of today's show, the start of our first hour, we were joined again by Blake Masters, U.S. Senate nominee for the Republicans out in Arizona, a key race that was always at least on paper going to be close, should be a toss-up. He was struggling and trailing all summer. Now all the major prognosticators are calling it a pure toss-up. It could go either way here's part of my discussion with the candidate out there about his race heading into the final stretch. So a couple weeks ago we had you on. It was shortly before your one and only debate against your opponent, Senator Mark Kelly. I watched that debate. I think, at least in my mind, it was a turning point in the race. You performed very well. You were prepared and aggressive. He seemed not ready for what you threw at him. Do you have a similar sense about that, moment that night being an inflection point or was that just one step along this path
4: you know it was both i think we had momentum before but that was also certainly an inflection point right it was the first time a lot of people both in arizona and you know everywhere in washington dc for instance, first time a lot of people got to see me and look i i don't know if that was the best that senator kelly can do right either he was lazy and unprepared or that's the best he can do in which case yikes But uh, not even the fake news liberal media could pretend that he won because he obviously didn't. So um, I think, you know, all I had to do was go out and tell the truth. That's what I did. I knew Senator Kelly was going to struggle because his record is indefensible. So how exactly is he supposed to
3: capably defend it? But uh, good inflection point. We've had the momentum ever since, and we're not looking back. Yeah, that was early October. And you got the sense, like, okay, things might be shifting out there. I was hearing some rumors and some reports and some folks on the ground saying, "Kerry Lake is surging in the governor's race. Blake Masters is not far behind. This thing is definitely moving. And now here we are in late October. We are a week and a half or so away from Election Day. And a bunch of the smart set that have been writing you off for a long time, suddenly they're catching up with reality and saying, oh, wait, actually – Now that we think about it and now that we're hearing about some of the data and that sort of thing, this race is no longer lean Democrat. This is a pure toss-up race. They might have been a little late to the party, but they've gotten there. If you agree, and I assume you do, please explain to us, based on what you're experiencing on the ground, what you're seeing in your numbers, why is this a toss-up now?
4: Well, it's a jump ball if you look at the polls. You know, they either have me down one in the statistical margin of error or, you know, we have some public polls and some private data that says it's, it's really just tied up. Uh, but the difference is we've got the momentum and the Democrats don't. You know, I think we're running a strong race. I'm certainly uh, outworking Mark Kelly, doing more media interviews, more grassroots events, just more, more, more. But it's also not unique to my race, right? Statewide, we've got a great ticket. Carrie Lake. Right. I think she's the best gubernatorial nominee uh, in the whole country. And it's not even close. She is crushing her opponent, Katie Hobbs. We're running uh, as a team. We're doing a lot of joint events, including with our AG candidate, Abe Hamide, our our secretary of state candidate, Mark Fincham. We're we're kind of a united front and the Democrats aren't doing that. But it's not even just statewide. Right. It's national. And I I sort of knew this was going to happen. I knew that our grassroots in Arizona and just patriots across this country are fired up. But now uh, I think everybody's seeing that the dam has broken. We have all the momentum on our side. The Democrats wanted to make this entire election about, you know, January 6th and abortion. And turns out, you know, a lot of people are having trouble affording food. A lot of people in Arizona are just mad as hell about this wide open southern border that Joe Biden and Mark Kelly have created, right? Violent crime is surging. So nothing that the Democrats have touched is going well. People are really waking up to this. That's why I think we're starting to see the red wave build up here in Arizona and across this country.
3: Well, and even on one of the issues that they wanted to focus on and fixate on abortion, once they learn about Mark Kelly's voting record and his opinion on it, they're like, whoa, wait, hang on. That's no, no, thank you. I don't want that either. And I think that was one of the points that you were able to make very ably in that debate a few weeks ago. I actually think back to our previous interview, Blake, and you were extremely forthcoming and candid in a way that you don't necessarily hear from candidates a lot of the time. And we actually had Tucker Carlson on the show this week, and he has this special out at Fox Nation, as you know about your campaign, your candidacy, and he was very high on you as a very different type of person seeking office. He holds a low opinion, broadly speaking, of politicians, and you're one of those exceptions to his rule, at least, and – reflecting before our interview today i remember when we last spoke in late september you just admitted right now we're about three or four points behind oftentimes you have candidates refusing to admit that they're behind and not get specific you said we think we're about maybe three or four points behind it's shouting distance we can get there we need to build momentum well here we are weeks later and it sounds like your candid information for us is that you're no longer four points behind you're tied is that right That's right, although, you know what, I'm going to
4: continue to run like I'm four points behind, you know. I mean, we might actually be up one, you know. I think we might win this race by by one or two points here. It might not even be a photo finish, but my mentality for the last 500 days has been underdog. And I'm going to act like the underdog. I'm going to sprint through that finish line. We're going to campaign
3: like we're down four or five points. My full interview with Blake Masters, available online at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcast, Those are all options every day on demand, totally free, the entire show start to finish. When we come back, it's Halloween weekend. Is anyone here dressing up? Is anyone here even participating in Halloween? A survey that I find shocking will pour over those results when we come back.
2: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
3: Home stretch on a Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for listening. GuyBensonShow.com free podcast available every day. And it's not like technically a holiday weekend. We don't get extra days off either today or Monday, but heading into Halloween on Monday, it feels like a holiday weekend. A lot of people will be attending Halloween gatherings and parties tonight and tomorrow night, and the kiddos getting ready for trick-or-treating on Monday. And I've said this before, I am not anti-Halloween. It's not like I have a problem with it. It's just not my favorite holiday, and I don't really get into the spooky spirit very easily. I rarely do costumes. Every so often an idea hits and I'll do it, or I'll have an occasion where I need a costume and I'll just play along. But this year, for example, just, no, not happening No costume, no thought toward a costume at all. It's just not on my priority list. I might have a little bit of candy that I like, hang out with friends, maybe have a few cocktails, a few long drinks, some wine, and that'll be it for Halloween weekend, which kind of sounds like a party pooper type thing, but not nearly as party pooping as this study, this survey that just came out, that allegedly shows, it purports to show, that a slim majority, 52% of Americans, will not be handing out candy to trick-or-treaters this year. Some people are blaming inflation just with the cost of everything going up. They don't want to spend the money on candy to give to strangers. Halloween, though, is Halloween. Can you imagine being a little kid, going down the block, and every other house is like, no, closed for business? We will have enough festiveness at our household to at least have the mini array of brand name candies to hand out to kids if they ring the doorbell. To me, that is part of being an American. It's part of being an adult. People did it for you when you were a kid because, of course, we all loved Halloween more as children. And I think we have to pay it forward. So I am very much – and I'm I'm, ah, dubious – 52% not handing out candy. Really? A majority? What is that? I would guess something like 80-20, yes. Maybe with a tough economy and inflation, 70-30. But a majority saying no? I'm just not sure I buy it. But I am a strong yes. We will be handing out candy in our household. I refuse to subject the neighborhood kiddos to what's the equivalent of like a Halloween Grinch? These Grinches who are stealing Halloween. Look, I am sensitive to the economic pressures and the inflation. I just feel like you know. It's not fair to take it out on kids who just want to trick or treat. You can have some inexpensive, relatively speaking, candy on hand. Christine, are you buying this? Are you guys handing out candy?
1: Of course, we're handing out candy. We are, because um, don't forget this is our first year in the apartment, so oh, we're right. So whoever wants to hand out candy, you have to decorate your door. And there's a door decorating contest. So we'll be doing that on Sunday. And then, yeah, it's like a two-hour thing from 7 to 9. I'm so excited.
3: Actually, I want to now give you a homework assignment because we can test this. Understandably, this is a very small sample size, and it may not be really a scientific way of doing this. But on Sunday and Monday, I want you to go around your building and just take mental note of the approximate percentage of doors that are decorated versus those that are not. Because, am I understanding you correctly? If you leave your door bare, blank, nothing on it, kids aren't going to knock or ring. That's like a, no, we're not doing candy here, move on to the next door type signal. Is that right? Yep. Okay, so I would love to know, is it roughly half and half? I would be shocked. But I guess you never know until it actually happens. So please report back on Monday, which is actually Halloween, or maybe even tuesday once the whole thing is over. Oh yeah, I forgot
1: but, to tell you I'm off on monday. So, have fun. You're taking monday off? It's halloween. I have to take off. Do you? Yeah, yes.
3: <laughs> I Why did, is that?
1: Uh because my daughter is participating in the school parade and I am go, we get to finally go into the class for the mm. school party and then mm-hmm. right after we'll be trick or treating. I I got okay. mom duties.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm surprised they let you in that school given your class mom exploits last year, but that's fair. And also, in in fairness to you as well, it's not like there's a major national election a few days away that we're covering every day. That's fine. Just uh, Wyatt has it handled. I'm sure. <laughs> I <can't. laughs> Wyatt, I actually because Wyatt is Wyatt is a diminutive guy and he's young still. I wonder Wyatt if you were to like do some really good makeup or something, could you pass as a trick or treater? I,
0: I I don't know about that guy.
3: Have you ever trick-or-treated, or were you like, I will be here smoking a pipe, reading the paper until my siblings get home safe and sound. Then I'm going to inspect their candy to make sure it's safe.
8: Yeah, of course I've been trick-or-treating. I've,
0: I've gone trick-or-treating my neighborhood growing up and, and all that, but, but yeah.
3: Any big Halloween parties that you're going to? Do you have a costume this year, Wyatt?
0: No, unfortunately not. I, I don't think I'll be uh, going out trick-or-treating this year or, or any big parties or anything on the schedule as of, as of right now.
3: Christine, did you have any ideas for maybe a costume, last-minute costume recommendation for Wyatt?
1: Wyatt, I think you need to go find some sort of party down in D.C. because I have the best idea for a costume for you. I think you need to dress from head to toe in the color red and just go as the Red Wave.
3: Mm. It's, a political, it's a political costume, Wyatt.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting one, Christine.
3: You think that would go over well among <laughs> the crowds in D.C.? Famously Red Wave rooting D.C. <laughs> Trying to get Wyatt killed? Who's going to produce the show on Monday? Christine, you're off. Let's oh just, you know, let's at least let him get the show produced, and then he can go be the Red Wave. At that point, we'll be eight days out. Are you doing a costume, Christine? I feel like I almost forgot to ask you this. You were mentioning something about a cookie-themed costume, weren't you?
1: I was – so Bobby, Megan, and I are going to a Halloween party tomorrow afternoon, and I was thinking of dressing as a cookie and have Bobby dress as like a milk box, a milk carton.
3: Okay. So milk and cookie. Milk and cookie.
1: But – oh, gosh. I hope this couple doesn't listen to – I'm not sure if they listen to the show, but I feel bad saying this. I didn't want to waste the costume on like this person's party. Ooh. Is that mean?
3: Well, I mean, you could also use it at another event. You could go trick-or-treating as a family. It's not like it would only happen at this party. And by the way, it doesn't matter what the venue is. You just have to get cute pictures and put it on social media. For example, at CookiesJar1988, your Twitter handle, Like that's the point of these costumes. The whole point of costumes is to take photos and share it with the world whether they want to see or not.
1: I mean, I do that often enough, but I wanted to walk into a party that people know who Cookie is. I mean, this is really the first time we're going to this person's house. I don't really know them very well.
3: Well, that would require you to be invited to a party by people who know you. (laughs) Are are you insinuating
1: that if somebody – these people only invited me because they don't know me yet?
3: Yeah, they don't know you yet. They're sort of like, oh, I'm sure – let's get Megan's parents here. And then it's like, okay, next year let's – a little ixnay on the Yoki
1: Oh, my goodness.
3: It's possible. As many people are saying, I am not saying that. I would never say that. In fact, I've invited you to my party for Christmas. You've never invited me to anything at your house. So, like, I mean, that is clearly not my sentiment that I'm sharing. I'm just hypothetically asking a question. That's
1: all. I told you, if you ever need a place to crash when you go to a Giants game, you can sleep over my apartment.
3: Mm -hmm. Last question. What candy are you guys handing out?
1: So we actually haven't bought any candy yet. I think we'll probably do that tomorrow. Megan loves, and I know you don't, Megan loves to give out the gummies. You know, the, not those kind of gummies, actual gummy candy.
3: Oh, she's a child. I <laughs> did think of that, Christine. I just
1: wanted to clarify. Megan loves Sour Patch Kids, gummy bears, gummy worms, like any of that stuff. So uh, I'll probably do one big bag of that and then maybe probably uh, uh, some sort of chocolate and that we'll probably just call it a day. But I, I'm looking are, are forward you a to very,
3: it. Are you a very, like, quintessential suburban mom, like you open the door? And what are you Oh yes, to each kid?
1: Of course. I, that's what I love. And this year I'm so excited to, like, hopefully meet friends. You know, we don't really have anybody in the building yet. So, I mean, mama wants to stumble two doors down for her wine. She doesn't, you know, want to have to Uber.
3: <laughs> I feel like Jerry Seinfeld did a bit, A few years ago, maybe more than a few at this point, about continuing to trick or treat when you're kind of pushing the age limit, sort of borderline too old, maybe in middle school, and you just kind of want to go door to door, get your candy like, all right, let's get it over with. Put the candy in the bag, lady. We don't want to talk. We're going to move on. I feel like you would be the nightmare for that kid, like the 11 to 12-year-old, slightly awkward Self conscious kid who wants the candy but doesn't want to chat, and then it's just like chatty cookie opens the door and he's just waylaid for minutes on end. You should have some sort of a warning sign on the door like chat at your own risk.
1: <laughs> I think it's going to be, I, I maybe I could be a nightmare. I was also, by the way, just I'm going to put it out there because I'm sure a lot of people were. I was a nightmare for my poor father from about 18 till I don't know 22. Because every Halloween I was going to some college party where I was some version of a mm-hmm. bunny
3: or mm-hmm. a cat. Yeah, and it's just like a certain type of bunny or cat. Yeah, and my father would be yeah. like,
1: "What? Where? where is the cat part? I'm like, Dad, look at the ears. These are cat ears. <laughs> or look at mm-hmm. the bunny ears. And nothing else was, you know, a bunny.
3: Yeah, like maybe a little bunny tail, the little ears. Maybe you paint on a couple whiskers and everything else is just um, – I, I don't think I'm – Technically banned from using the word that comes to mind, but just revealing. Yes, It's a revealing costume, which is the point.
1: Yes, it was my poor father. He would always say, go back upstairs, please put on some more clothes. And then I would say, no, I can't.
3: And now here you are, years later, working through it with your therapists, right? I think, you know, you and Roy probably have a lot to talk about. There are some issues there, and we don't have time to get into them because we are up on the final break of the show because it's over. It's the weekend. It's Halloween weekend. Go out there. Please be safe. Have a very fun time. Trick or treat. Be back here on Monday for The Guy Benson Show. All of you back here except for Christine, obviously. She's taking the day off. We aren't, though. We will be here working hard for you on The Guy Benson Show.